0: east.co My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini series, Sustainable Investing: The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than 1 trillion dollars in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Sides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. My guest on today's show is Bob Litterman, a founding partner and chairman of the Risk Committee at Kepos Capital. Prior to Kepos, he spent 23 years at Goldman Sachs, where his roles included heading the firm wide risk function and heading the quantitative investment strategies group at GSAM. Bob was one of the original inductees into Risk Magazine's Risk Management Hall of Fame and is well known for co developing the Black Litterman global asset allocation model with the late Fisher Black. After leaving Goldman in 2009, Bob became fascinated by the risk management problem posed by climate change, and that is the focus of this third episode in Sustainable Investing The Next Frontier. Our conversation covers Bob's background in quantitative research, applying risk management principles to address climate change, modeling the price of carbon emissions, and concluding that we must slam on the brakes immediately to address global warming. We then turned to his work on policy to implement his conviction and his activity in the public markets across the World Wildlife Fund's stranded asset swap and his research at Kepos to play a rapid adoption theme from the lens of a quantitative investor. I recently got involved with the Alliance for Decision Education, an educational nonprofit dedicated to the belief that better decisions lead to better lives and a better society. The Alliance is building a national movement to ensure decision education is part of every middle and high school student's learning experience. I wish I had learned the science of decision-making back then, and I'm keen to spread the word and do my part so that my kids and yours learn to make better decisions throughout their lives. To learn more and join me in this movement, visit alliancefordecisioneducation.org. That's AllianceForDecisionEducation.org. Please enjoy my conversation with Bob Litterman. Bob, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. Well, why don't we start with your background and take me through to how you ended up going from Goldman to what we're going to talk about today.
1: Sure. I'm an economist. And my early career, I taught at MIT. And then I went to the Federal Reserve Bank. I was an economist there. And I thought that was going to be my career. But this is in the uh, mid 80s. One day, I got a call from a headhunter. I didn't even know what a headhunter was. But the next thing I knew, I was a young quant on Wall Street in the early days of financial engineering. And gosh, I was like a kid in a candy store. There were so many interesting problems.
0: What was that initial call like when you thought you were on your career path and now you're heading to Wall Street all of a sudden?
1: Actually, it was kind of funny now that you ask because the first call, I had no clue. I didn't know what a headhunter was. And it turned out it was a headhunter who was looking for a chief economist. And as she said, you know, at a major Wall Street firm. And I was a young Fed economist. I wasn't qualified to be like the economist at a major firm, but someone thought I was. And I said, well, you know, it would take six figures. You know, I was not making six figures at the time. But what I didn't realize is that was a, you know, multiple seven figure job. So I clearly indicated that I had no idea what, you know, this was about. (laughs) I never heard back from that headhunter. But then later... I got another call, and that time it was more of a quant job, and I ended up going to Goldman Sachs and started in fixed income research, building models there. And then early on, Goldman asked me to get involved in risk management, which was kind of a new area, and they asked me to be head of risk management, which was a partner level position. And I did that for four years, and then uh, they asked me to move to asset management, so I did that and ended up heading the quant group in asset management. And I was very pleased to do that for about 10 years. I thought I was gonna retire. Some of the folks that I was working with decided to open up their own hedge fund. So instead of retiring, I, I joined them, that's Keppos Capital. But for the last 10 years, as I've been at Kepos, I've really been very focused on climate risk. And I've joined a number of boards. The World Wildlife Fund was the first environmental board I just kept going. And my interest in risk management led me to get interested in climate risk in particular. And then what I found is that there are a lot of parallels between the way we think about and manage financial risk and the way we should be thinking about and managing climate risk.
0: Well, why don't we dive in there? What were the key lessons in risk management that when you somehow made that shift you thought applied well to climate risk?
1: The first thing, you know, when you're thinking about risk and return on Wall Street, and you're always balancing those in you know, building portfolios of stocks or bonds or credit loans, you know, whatever it is, we think about, are we getting paid appropriately for the risks that we're taking? And that, that's one of the key lessons. At, at Goldman, we made a lot of money from taking risk. And when they asked me to be head of risk management, It wasn't because goldman sachs wanted to reduce its risk they wanted to make more money from the risks that they were taking and if we were taking risks that we weren't getting paid for we should identify those and hedge them get rid of them so similarly or you know at the heart of climate is the fact that we're not pricing the risk appropriately so that's one lesson now another lesson that's very clear is that you have to think about worst case scenarios or in the financial community now, we don't really talk about worst case so much because that's in many contexts, that's not defined. I, I remember early on Goldman asked me to think about how much we could lose in our swap portfolio. Well, there's no upper bound. There's really no number. I can't say we're not going to lose more than X because you know then you can. So we in the financial markets, we usually talk about extreme but plausible scenarios. And that's a good way of thinking about climate risk. What are the extreme but plausible scenarios? But more generally, you have to think about that full distribution of outcomes. Typically, we don't. It's very scary in climate when you think about worst cases that that are plausible. And uh, it's not alarmist. That's just what risk management is about. And then a third lesson that I think is really key is that Time is not on our side. And and the way I think about it is that if you have enough time, you can solve virtually any risk management problem. It's when you run out of time. One of my colleagues at Goldman, I was with him when we were talking to a hedge fund group, and he he used a phrase that I found very enlightening. He said, you know, you get time compression, and that's when you run out of time to solve a problem. And indeed, I've seen that. I've experienced that. At Goldman, when I headed our quant group and the whole quant space melted down, we thought we would have months to get out of positions. And all of a sudden, we had days or hours. It was a realization there's nothing we can do here. And so, the urgency of the climate crisis is really because it is a risk management problem. And we don't know how much time we've got. And if we don't get started in time, we're not gonna be able to solve the problem. So that's another one. And then the last one that I would focus on, which is really key too, is that risk, and often economists make this distinction between risk and uncertainty. And when you make that distinction, we make it a lot in the financial community, risks are things that we can measure like volatility or value at risk. We report on them, their metrics, but what we manage is something much more uncertain. The models that we use, any metric like risk, risk is a metric, comes from a model, and it makes certain assumptions about how the past will be guide to the future. But those models are always inadequate. They're always approximations, and the real world is always much more complicated. We don't really trust our models. And similarly, with respect to climate, or actually much more with respect to climate, because at least in our models, we can say, well, we've got a 10-year history here of daily moves in XYZ, so I have a full distribution. In climate, we're doing this experiment for the first time. We don't have a distribution to look at. So there is tremendous uncertainty. And I got kind of stuck into this climate thing because I thought what we have to do, it's very obvious we have to price the risk. And I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, well, Bob, you know, that's a brilliant insight for an economist, but no one has a clue where to price the risk. And I thought, wait a minute, that can't be true. I'm an economist. I can read the literature here. I, it's got to be someone who's thought about this seriously. There must be. We must have a clue. So I kind of got sucked into that literature and, and eventually ended up building my own model because I wasn't happy with the models that were out there. They, they didn't use the appropriate, I would say, discounting, something that's essential on Wall Street. You don't get to pick a discount rate. You have to match it to the discount rates you see in the market. And similarly, I mean, there's a a lot of issues with respect to price and climate risk. But the bottom line is that my colleague was actually kind of right. These models, they're so primitive and we have so little data. We're extrapolating 50 or 100 years into the future. We don't know what the technology is going to be. We don't know what the fragility of the environment is going to be. There's these non-linearities. Science knows a lot, and we know that we're doing an experiment that is very dangerous, but we don't know the full distribution of outcomes. And so when we come up with an answer to the question, where should we be pricing risk? Well, it's a risk number, but the uncertainty around that is so large and what I found when I looked into this was that the number that came out of the model, it was hard to get it down below, say, $100 a ton. And now you say, but the range of uncertainty is much wider than that. It's not just me. The UN a few years ago had a report, and they had a, a table about the limitations of economic models of climate risk. And they they listed a whole bunch of limitations. And then at the at the end, they said the bottom line is, You can get any number you want, anywhere from $2 a ton to $200 a ton. So I'm in the middle of that range, but it's still a big range. And the bottom line is what does it mean to say you have to worry about the uncertainty or you have to manage the uncertainty? It is that you have to be cautious. You can't take your risk number seriously. And so to be cautious means you have to err on the side of caution. It means a higher number in this context. You have to price emissions at a level where you're very confident. That you're going to solve the problem and avoid a total catastrophe here. We're talking about existential risk to the planet. So we should be very cautious. And that kind of got me very passionate about this topic, as you can imagine, when I realized that.
0: So let's break down sort of what this model is. You mentioned that we're pricing the cost of emissions, or effectively the externality of emissions. What are the factors, just at a basic level, that go into the model?
1: It's pretty straightforward, too. It's, you have emissions. The emissions create uh, warming, and they also create other problems, such as the acidification of the ocean and so on. And it has impacts on everything from health to national security, heat waves, you know, the whole thing. So you've got all these damages. And there certainly are a lot of uncertainties about the extent of those damages, the cost of those damages. And in our model, we put all of that into what we call the fragility of the environment. And then you convert that to a distribution of monetary damages that are occurring at different points in the future, depending on the level of emissions. So there's a whole bunch of approximations that we use there, data from science. You know, So far, it's all kind of science, but then you have to assume a cost curve that says, all right, if I create an incentive at this level, how much am I going to reduce emissions? So it's basically a mapping between where you price emissions and think of the price of emissions as being a kind of a shorthand for all the different policies that you might use. Some might be regulation, some might be pricing of uh, emissions in in coal and oil and and natural gas and, and so on. But how hard are we going to push to reduce emissions? And we kind of summarize that in a price. And then we map different levels of that price to different degrees of emissions reduction. And we say, all right, let's follow an optimal policy from this point on forward. What does that policy look like? And so we look at different alternative policies. We compute damages. We do a discounted present value of all those damages. And we say, you know, what's the optimal policy? And in our context, one of the important things is that we think about. The revelation of uncertainty over time so we don't know what the fragility of the planet is right now it could be very robust it could be very fragile today we have to plan our policy in a way that prepares us for you know the worst case which is a very fragile environment so those are the important inputs and then you make assumptions about those sort of different things and you can look at your sensitivity to the different assumptions and that's kind of how you proceed.
0: And so you work through these assumptions. You've got a range of possible outcomes, which we know is wide. What is the data showing you today?
1: Well, there's a couple of things it's showing. Number one, we should do what I call slam on the brakes. Okay. The usual approach, or let's say the usual types of modeling which don't take risk into account. Assume that you should start at a relatively low price for emissions today, or, you know, whenever you started, but it should have started years ago. But then that price rises over time as you get closer to when these damages are coming. And they assume that you know when those damages are coming exactly. It's not a distribution of outcomes. So you don't worry a lot about getting prepared for the worst case because you assume you know what the cases are. Anyway, so one of the things is that rather than having a slow increase in price, which I kind of sometimes call an ease on the brake scenario, because your one operator here is the price on emissions. And so it's, that's your control. How hard do you press on it? The reality is today the incentives globally are very strong to support the production and consumption of fossil fuels. So kind of like i say, that's like having your foot on the gas pedal. Now there are incentives to go the other way. And when you add them all up, the bottom line is something close to zero today. So you've got incentives going against you, you've got incentives going in the right direction. The net incentive globally is close to zero. And the question is, where should it be? Well, instead of a slow increase over time, the reality is in order to take the risk into account, we should be quickly, immediately slamming on the brakes. And I say immediately, and this is kind of an interesting part of our analysis, is we can also ask the question, what happens if we delay that pricing? And the answer is, well, you can't make up for lost time. Your maximum temperature is going to be higher. You're going to have to slam the brakes harder and try and reduce emissions quicker. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to reduce it more quickly. And so you're going to get to a higher ultimate temperature. And the scary thing is how quickly that maximum temperature is rising. We're at about a one degree C above historical average temperature today. And for every three years that we delay pricing emissions, the maximum temperature, the best case, or let's say the optimal solution, is another tenth of a degree onto that expected maximum temperature. And so if we're at, I don't know, 1.7 is about where we're at, best case. You don't know for sure, obviously. But in other words, if we had a globally strong incentive to reduce emissions that we put on immediately today, and obviously that's not going to happen but that's kind of the best case. You're going to get somewhere between one and a half and two degrees as your maximum temperature. Depends a lot on things we don't know, know. How good is the technology going to be? Are we going to put on geoengineering? How quickly can we pull the CO2 out of the atmosphere when that becomes economical and so on? So those are a lot of uncertainties, but bottom line is that we can expect that temperature to get above two degrees if we don't act very soon in the next decade and two degrees C is, according to the IPCC or say the latest science is just incredibly dangerous. Just as one example, I like to quote the IPCC report on the impact of one and a half degrees versus two degrees. One and a half degrees, they said, we're gonna lose 70 to 90% of the coral reefs globally. That's already baked into the cake. We're, We're already on a path that will take us above that and at two degrees C, that amount of coral reefs that will be lost is over 99%. They're so basically going to kill off all coral reefs globally. And that's a decade away, something like that. I mean, to me, this is just a, a huge crisis. And it's sad because had we addressed this 20 years ago, wouldn't have been that costly. We could have had a very smooth transition and the maximum temperature would be somewhere around where we are today which is to say not great, but not catastrophic. And instead, we have this huge risk, and it's growing very quickly.
0: We're in this period of time of this global pandemic with COVID-19, and part of what you're describing, this exponential change over time and the need to start earlier, I think is more tangible now to people because of what's happened with this pandemic. Is there any movement that you're seeing yet in the government or the powers that be that need to make these changes to recognize the parallels in those situations and act as a result?
1: I don't have evidence to point to, Ted, but I think it's very likely that when we get through this COVID crisis, we're going to see the parallels. They're both global risk management crises. In both cases, they're urgent. And in both cases, we're reacting too slowly. And what we've seen with COVID is the cost of acting too slowly, particularly in this country, relative to some of the other countries that acted quickly and got much better outcomes so far. But we're also seeing a lesson about the collective action, the importance of collective action. None of us can address these on our own. We have to work together. We're all in this together. And that's true for climate as well as COVID. And I just hope and expect that there will be a pendulum swing away from this sort of crazy populist ignoring of uh, science for recognition of the reality of what science tells us and the need to take it to heart when we come up with government policies. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we are going to slam on this break and create the appropriate incentive to reduce emissions that will hopefully allow us to uh, avoid catastrophic climate outcomes.
0: And how will that mechanism play through?
1: Politically, I think you're saying, well, you know, I think the U.S. is by far the stumbling block in terms of global coordination today. Europe and China and the rest of the world, frankly, are ready to move and are waiting for the U.S. Well, I don't think they're waiting, but the reality is that we should all be moving together in a coordinated fashion. When I talk about an appropriate incentive to reduce emissions, of course, I mean globally harmonized. And until the U.S. starts moving ahead, you can't expect other countries to move ahead with a strong response on their own. And it's got to be coordinated. So I'm looking for the U.S. to come to its senses that we should take this seriously. And therefore, I would hope to see a carbon tax passed by Congress sometime next year
0: And you mentioned at the onset that you're involved in some of the organizations trying to influence policy. What's that work been?
1: I've been doing a lot of different things with a lot of organizations. First of all, I sit on the board of the Climate Leadership Council, which is the sponsor of the Baker Schultz Carbon Dividend Approach. That's probably the leading U.S. effort to price emissions right now. It's a bipartisan effort. It's got support from basically the entire corporate sector, all, virtually all the economists in this country, a lot of the uh, environmental communities. I, I like to tell people we've got support from everyone from ExxonMobil to the World Wildlife Fund and everyone in between. So that's pretty broad support. Now, I'm also uh, the chair of the uh, CFTC, that's the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, climate-related market risk subcommittee, which is a group of 35 leaders of the financial markets, including banks, insurance companies, the uh, NGOs, uh, academics, and other interested parties. And we're all working right now to create a report for the CFPC that's going to provide hopefully a a kind of roadmap for the financial community on how to deal with climate. And of course, one of our recommendations is that uh, we create appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. Everyone agrees on that. I don't know how it can't be done. It's got to be done. It's got to be done soon, and everyone seems to agree on that.
0: That's the key question. And if you have a consortium that can range from the World Wildlife Fund to Exxon, what is the obstacle in getting something done?
1: Well, it's Republicans in the Senate. Let's be perfectly honest. I think that's changing quickly. Let's just put it that. One of the uh, senators that I often talk to, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, says what we need is a jailbreak because these Republicans in the Senate—they all know better, by the way—they all know it's real. They admit it now. They all, they've changed their talking points. Some people haven't recognized that, but they say, yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's, it's caused by human behavior. And what we need is innovation. Well, OK, but you know, if you want to get innovation, you need incentives. I always pound on incentives, you know, because what are incentives? They're anything that changes behavior. Well, we've got to change behavior. We've got to change incentives. And, you know, they all get it. So it's a question of when is the opportunity politically for them to come out and say, yeah, yeah, we've got to do this. And I hope it happens soon. It's just so sad.
0: When you take this from the policy level to the financial markets, where have you seen investors taking action in and around your thought processes?
1: Okay, well, investors, and let's just talk about financial markets because I've been in them for decades. They are incredibly efficient at making money for investors and for asset owners, for entrepreneurs, people are motivated to make money. And so they allocate capital in the direction of the incentives that they face. And to this day we have the wrong incentives. Okay, so capital naturally flows in the wrong direction. And people in the financial markets have tried their hardest to come up with ways to redirect capital in the right way, things like green bonds, okay, and In Europe now they're focusing on a green taxonomy. Well, okay, but guess what? The incentives go the wrong way. And so it's kind of like trying to push water uphill. It doesn't work very well. You get the incentives right, get out of the way and watch the capital flow. There are different ways to set up incentives. So in Europe, for instance, they have this taxonomy, they define certain types of investments as green, others as brown, and then they create, for instance, tax incentives, other types of incentives for investors to invest in green investments. Well, guess what you get from that? You get a lot of green investments, but you don't necessarily get a lot of emissions reductions.
0: What are the paths that you could say clients of Kepos or people that you've seen in the markets are taking to try to address this uh, when they're not pricing this in the right way?
1: Well, you know, Kepos like other businesses is in the business of making money. So What we are looking at at Kepos and what a lot of investors are looking at is, okay, there is going to be, inevitably, there's going to be a policy response. I can't tell you when or how. Is it going to be a carbon tax? Is it going to be cap and trade? Is it going to be a green taxonomy? What is it going to be? But at the end of the day, we know that humanity has to quickly reduce its emissions. And so there's going to be a rapid transition. To a low carbon economy. What we're all facing in the future is transition risk as we implement those policies to move to a low carbon economy and the physical risks from climate change. And so as an investor, what I want to do is I want to tilt my portfolio in a direction that it's going to do better in the context of a rapid transition to a low carbon economy and to avoid the perils of the uh, climate change in terms of the physical impacts. And so that, there's a lot of analysis that has to go into that, but you're looking for what are going to be the stranded assets. I, I don't want those in my portfolio. So as an example, I don't want to own coal mines. We're not going to need coal mines. There's plenty of, and, and oil, you know, there's plenty of oil out there. What we don't have is a place to put the emissions. And so I have to think about, okay, which companies and which assets are going to be impacted the most? by this rapid transition. And it really has impacts throughout the economy. And then in addition, how am I going to avoid assets like PG&E was impacted by, you know, the physical risk, the wildfires and the floods and the hurricanes, stronger, you know, winds and, and so on. And so there's assets that are at risk from those as well. And then we're going to see who knows? But there could be these disease impacts and other types of uh, health impacts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, as an investor, I've got to anticipate those and what are the, the impacts on valuations, and that's how I've got to adjust my portfolio.
0: So, when you start looking through the stranded assets, might be a little bit easier to identify, right? You can easily point to coal as a starting point and then maybe oil and say we're going to exclude those from our portfolio. How do you work it through in sectors where the impact of some of the stranded assets could work both ways?
1: Even within oil and gas, there's going to be winners and losers, but certainly in other areas, and it's not always obvious. So you say to yourself, I think electric vehicles are going to be a dominant source of transportation 10, 20 years from now, but who are going to be the winners in that space? Is it going to be a new entrant? So Tesla, but you know, is the valuation there realistic? So, right. And then is it going to be the entrenched car makers? You know, should I be betting on Volvo or Toyota? You know, a lot of that, it's more like fundamental analysis than quant analysis. I'm I'm a quant, but quants typically say, well, what's worked in the past? I'm going to project that into the future. We've never gone through a rapid transition to a low carbon economy. I can't really look at what's worked in the past. So I have to do some fundamental analysis in oil and gas I've got to think about okay if we're in a world where there's a lot lower demand for oil the first order implication is that the price of oil is going to be lower and I think that's true I think we're in for you know decades of low oil prices so then you ask yourself that's not going to be good for the oil industry but it's certainly going to be much worse for a company that specializes in extracting expensive sources of oil than Saudi Aramco which has a huge source of cheap oil. So they're all gonna be negatively impacted, but some much worse than others. And then the question is, what's already built into prices? You know, In my career, I have pounded the table on the fact that in most contexts, the market is pretty darn efficient. And so if I'm making an argument that stranded assets are, are overvalued, I have to be making an argument that I know better than others about their valuation. And really my argument is, that the transition to a low carbon economy is going to be faster than what's built into market expectations. And I think that's true, but to be honest, so far I've been kind of wrong. We have not slammed on the brakes. Our foot is still on the accelerator, and you know, we're going in the wrong direction. Other than the COVID. Now, COVID is a whole nother issue, but the bigger picture in the longer run, we haven't yet gotten started.
0: As you start to think about the market pricing emissions more efficiently. What are the different ways you could participate in that in the markets?
1: So There's a lot of different ways, and it's not so obvious. As you suggested, the first easiest thing to talk about are things like coal and oil, and if we're moving rapidly to a low-carbon economy, that's not going to be good for those industries in general. And then within other industries, you know, transportation, we talked about, you're looking for the companies that are going to be positively impacted by those. But it's not so obvious. If it was obvious, everyone would already be doing it. And I guess some people think, and so far have been correct, that we're not going to slam on the brakes. We're just going to keep moving in the wrong direction until it's too late. It's a pretty uh, depressing thought. But I think we're going to get it right, I hope. I think that once we do create those incentives, I'm an economist, I know how powerful incentives are. You're going to have every entrepreneur, every uh, business, every investor, all moving in the same direction, responding to those incentives. And I think we will quickly be able to reduce emissions. Now, I think we're also going to have to do geoengineering to reduce the existing CO2 in the atmosphere. So one way to think about how bad this problem is, is to recognize we're probably going to have to pull most of the CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere here today back out. That's an expensive proposition. That's a huge liability for the next generation. And the sooner we get started on that, because it's, it's a lot cheaper not to put it in than it is to put it in
0: and then pull it out. So I know you've been involved with the World Wildlife Fund, and I'm curious, with an organization like that, that has some assets to manage, how do they think about it today?
1: So I'm glad you asked that question. I've been chairing the uh, investment committee at WWF for a while, actually I no longer chair it, but I was chairing it back in 2014 and we, we had a discussion about how should we be positioning our portfolio. So there were a number of trustees who thought we should divest. And we talked about divestment and, and we looked through our portfolio and said, well, what would we divest of? What are our stranded assets? And they were, they were tiny, as you might imagine. We didn't have a lot of coal and, and oil. We had a little bit here and there through external managers and in private equity or in uh, hedge funds. And our, our advisors told us, it's going to be very expensive for you to get rid of every last piece of it. You've got less than 1%. But it's all over the place in tiny little pieces. And your managers, you're part of funds that will make decisions. So you're going to have to get out of those funds. You may have to sell this private equity. You're going to take a 20% haircut. It's less than 1%. Just don't worry about it. And we said, no, you know, we're the World Wildlife Fund. We want our portfolio to reflect our mission. We don't want to be supporting these activities. Help us out here. They came up with a very innovative solution, which was what we called a stranded asset total return swap. We basically took all those assets that had been identified and said, we're going to sell the return on those assets and receive a return on a broad portfolio of the market. And in doing so, we basically adjusted our portfolio in a very inexpensive way so that we no longer had the economic exposure to those stranded assets. What we didn't realize was how well that stranded asset would perform that stranded asset swap. I mean, I thought, yeah, these assets are probably going to underperform. I often get the question, who would take the other side of that bet? The reality is, of course, more than one investment bank would be happy to take that because they get paid a fee, and then what they do is they offset the risk in the market. So in effect, they're executing on your behalf. But I I love the uh, swap because it's it's just a bet. And, And you can watch that bet, and I do. I watch it all the time. And it's performed great. It's up over 130% now since we put it on in seven years ago. So it reflects what is widely known, which is that fossil fuel sector has dramatically underperformed the market for a long time now. And it seems to be accelerating. So I kind of like it from that perspective. It's easy to implement. For us, we did a swap for a retail investor you you don't go to a broker and say, put on a swap. That requires a a brokerage account and all kinds of agreements. It's more of an institutional type of approach, but an individual can uh, buy and sell ETFs pretty easily. And there are ETFs that represent exposure to coal or exposure to oil and gas and exposure to the market. So it's relatively easy to put this this on. Now, you can be more sophisticated about it, certainly, but that's a simple way to do it.
0: And when you want to get more sophisticated about it, I know you're kind of in the process of thinking about how to implement some of these strategies to a more granular level. So why don't you walk through kind of how you've thought about the research behind that and, and what you're looking to do with it?
1: Sure. Well, we started you know years ago, actually, at WWF, looking at research that was put out by third parties, for instance, a group in the UK called Carbon Tracker. has done a lot of good work saying okay which of the companies are most exposed to this and which not and now we're working with other data providers and looking at different sectors so as i mentioned you look at oil and gas one way you look at utilities another way materials transportation etc as a quant we often talk about factors so emissions for instance can be one factor within the utility sector for instance you know there are utilities that have more carbon dioxide emissions per unit of energy than others and that's one factor but then you have other factors for instance can a utility pass on the cost of reducing those emissions to its rate base or not some have more freedom to do that than others so some are more exposed and you look at those different factors they're going to be different in different industries and as i say it's a little bit like fundamental analysis and the scenario you're looking at is how will this company do in a rapid transition scenario relative to that company?
0: How do you try to maximize the impact that you can have personally across your activities?
1: My personal background is I had a risk management at Goldman Sachs. So that's where I have expertise. This is a risk management problem. And so I just try and speak out wherever I can in places like this and say, look, This is not that difficult. There's a risk management problem. We're not pricing the risk. That's the fundamental problem. We've got to do it. Everyone who looks into this problem seriously reaches the same conclusion. There's not a lot of disagreement. Now, there are a lot of people who say we're never going to get there. And so let's do this or let's do that. Let's plant trees. Let's stop driving. I'm not against those kinds of things, but it's just they don't operate at the same scale as providing the collective incentives that allow everyone to move in the right direction. And by the way, you don't even have to try. On the one hand, if I try to reduce my carbon footprint today when it's not built into prices, then I have to figure out how big is the carbon footprint of a hamburger versus chicken nuggets, You know, when I make a decision. And it's just unrealistic. I don't have that information. Should I make a phone call or should I drive to this meeting or should I, too many decisions, you can't do it. I don't even have the information. So you build it into prices. Now I don't even worry about it. I just worry about how do I allocate my resources. And I see the prices and I make those decisions. And they happen to be the right decisions. It's what we call the invisible hand.
0: There's a big disparity in developed market economies who have been using carbon. And a lot of the emerging countries where it seemed like the use of fossil fuels is kind of an early step as they grow their economies and move from relatively poor nations to lower middle class to middle class. So, How does the energy use required by those countries to work their way up the economic trajectory align with the desires of, say, a U.S.?
1: There's two important things to say there. Number one is that in many contexts, renewable energy is now the cheapest source of new energy when you're building out, you know, solar and uh, wind. And so it's very natural that uh, developing countries will be putting in a sustainable infrastructure. Now, the other thing to say is that we really have to separate two different issues. One issue is what are the right incentives to reduce emissions? And that should be globally harmonized. It's the the CO2 that's emitted in India in terms of its impact on climate change than CO2 emitted in the US. And so we should have those same incentives to reduce emissions everywhere in the world. The other problem is inequality and uh, health equity and all those, you know, we should be transferring knowledge and income or, or wealth to those developing countries. Helping development is fine, and we should do that in terms of, as I say, you know, transfers of wealth, transfers of knowledge, transfers of food or housing or whatever, but not by subsidizing pollution. That's not the right way to help those countries. So we just have to separate those and recognize they're two different problems. And the timescale is also very different. We have to slam on the brakes now with respect to climate. And that's by pricing emissions globally. And we also have to address income inequality and and all those other disparities across developing countries versus the developed world. Uh, And that's going to take a long time. So we've got to separate those two issues.
0: As you've gotten more and more passionate about this, I, I know that you're thinking about or on the cusp of investing some capital alongside some of these beliefs. What is that going to look like?
1: We don't have a product right now, but we're working on developing a product that will, as I say, do well in the context of a rapid transition to a low carbon economy. And so we're working with, actually, we're getting pretty close to launching it. And we're working with some seed investors and trying to figure out you know, exactly what should that look like. We tend to manage products that are market neutral. And we think that that makes sense in this context as well. And uh, so it's going to be long and short. It'll be across multiple sectors and we're doing all the research that I was talking about before to try and figure out how to do it. And yeah, there's there's some interesting issues. If we are going to try to benefit from the valuations in fossil fuels, do we want to be exposed to the fluctuations in oil prices? You know, there's going to be a lot of fluctuation in oil uh, that's going to create volatility in the short run. We could hedge that. Or we could just leave it as an exposure. So, you know, those are the kinds of issues that we're looking at.
0: What are some of the more subtle, complex issues as you look at different industries of how to incorporate this thesis of that sort of transition to low carbon?
1: Oh, well, each industry is different. And so when you think about some of the risks, I don't know, insurance companies, you have to ask yourself are they exposed or is this an opportunity? You know, maybe. If they see it coming, and I think they all see it coming. I can't imagine they don't see it coming. There's also issues, though, about do the regulators allow them to build it in? You know, in California, okay, wow, wildfire risk is growing exponentially. If you're an insurer, do you have to provide, you know, fire insurance? Are you able to pull back? Does the insurance regulator tell you that you have to, you know, make it affordable? And does that make it a risk? Or are you selling a lot more fire insurance because everyone needs it and you can jack up the price and now it's a profit opportunity? Yeah, there's a lot of subtleties that go into figuring out what's going to be the impact on the valuation of these companies.
0: What are some of the other examples?
1: So we talked about insurance, we talked about oil and gas, we talked about utilities, autos. I mean, I think it's a question of you know where are they priced today versus what kind of market share are they going to get? Do they have a... An advantage that's going to be permanent, a particular company, or are they at risk because you know someone's going to come in and you know what are their supply chains look like? Where are they going to be able to sell? Yeah, you know, it's it, a lot of these questions are uh, similar to the types of questions you address all the time in, in investing, and it's just a particular scenario that you're thinking about, which is one that's pretty complicated. What's going to be the policy? Is it going to be a carbon tax or is it going to be regulation? And if so, what kind of regulation? And, you know, what are investors betting on? What's already embedded in the price? There are other things that you can do if you've got a measure of market expectations of emissions pricing that you can track over time. And we don't really have a good measure, but you can, you know, conceptually, you can think of trying to measure that embedded in the prices of things that you've already identified are exposed you know i can look at how are coal companies behaving how are oil companies behaving all the things that i think are you know going to be impacted by investor expectations of policy how are they moving and then i can look at another company xyz in a different sector and say what is its exposure to this factor that's kind of what we often do as quants right so We can try and estimate what we call a beta or an exposure to this factor that is noisily measured anyway. And then I can use that to identify, here's a company that has a positive exposure and here's one that has a negative exposure, at least estimated over the recent period.
0: Do you think about investing in this way as a way to drive... Efficiency for the betterment of the environment and future generations, or is this just, hey, this is a great commercial way for us to implement on a thesis?
1: Uh, it's more the latter. I mean, I think that the key here is to create those appropriate incentives, and that's what I'm focused on. But as an investor, I happen to be watching this space, especially since the World Wildlife Fund put on its swap, all, you know, six and a half years ago and i've been saying to myself you know this is an opportunity I, i'll tell you the truth it was about uh, you know a year after we put that swap on at wwf and my wife said to me bob why aren't we doing that you know it was up 40 percent already and i was like you know you got a point there so we did it personally and i think my partners at keppos were watching this as well and came to the same conclusion why aren't we doing that for our clients it, it wasn't the most natural thing for a quant investment firm to do, our main product is you might say uh, liquidity provision, and we tend to be in and out of positions in a matter of days or weeks. So we're we're not high frequency, but we're relatively short term investors. And so to take a position that you know there's going to be a rapid transition to a low carbon economy, that's a little longer term than we usually focus.
0: If we look a few years out, and this climate emissions or climate risk becomes a factor in the same way quality and capitalization and yield have been factors. What do you think that factor looks like?
1: Well, I think that factor is evolving over time and it's evolving because obviously the market expectations are evolving as well. So if everything's priced in, in that context, there's not really a factor because You know, assets are priced appropriately. So I think it's always the the new evolution. And and to me, the big opportunity here now is the recognition that the response is not going to be a slow increase in concern about an action on climate. We haven't taken appropriate action yet, and we're going to have to. And when that happens, it's going to be more of a phase change than a slow evolution. And so once that phase change happens, obviously, there's a different approach to it. And now you're looking for, okay, what are the physical risks? Where are they going to start showing up? And how do I invest based on that kind of outlook?
0: All right, Bob, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm a cyclist. I have been for a long time. I I uh, continue to do that even now. I also like to play golf. I haven't played a lot of golf, and I don't imagine I will be anytime soon. The other thing I like to do, which is kind of fun, is in the exercise realm, Pilates. My wife got me interested in that years ago. And now I live on the East Coast, but I happen to be stuck here in California. So it's a little difficult to uh, go to the gym that I used to go to. But it turns out you can do Pilates remotely, as I've discovered, uh, using an iPad. So I continue to enjoy the Pilates even while I'm out here.
0: Great. What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: My pet peeve right now is that we're not taking science seriously, right? We're we're not doing the right things with respect to coronavirus. It just drives me crazy, you know, in terms of the lack of leadership in this country. And, and this country, which is, you know, the richest on earth, can't protect its people from a virus. And it's it's kind of sad, but I think we're going to get through it. And then we can, you know, slam on the brakes on climate. And uh, I'll feel much better after that.
0: <laughs> What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: Investors have common biases and uh, all of us do. And we try and avoid them. So one bias is trying to time the market, you know, and thinking, That we know better than others and uh, i don't know it's not a peeve so much but it's a bias that i try to avoid you know whenever people ask me what do i think about the market you know the answer is i don't know you know it's where it is for some reason and i'm not sure i understand why and i certainly don't know which way it's going
0: what do you do for self growth
1: i sit on a lot of boards and i must say i learn a lot from those boards so it's really, for me, an opportunity to operate in a number of different areas. I'm on the board of the Options Clearing Corp., so that keeps my toe in the water for financial markets. I sit on the Robert Wood Johnson board, which is focused on developing a culture of health, the Sloan Foundation, which funds science and economics. So, you know, not to mention my environmental boards, World Wildlife Fund, and, uh, and so I could go on. But anyway, that's plenty of, uh, you know, it, learning. How's that?
0: Yeah. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Well, you know, my dad was an engineer, and I've always been kind of, uh, in that sense, practical. I mean, financial engineer, I think, is kind of a form of engineering. When I was young, I used to think I was going to be a scientist, and then uh, my undergraduate major was human biology. Well, I got very interested in uh, journalism at one point. I was a journalist, then I went back and became an economist. So, uh, it's been kind of an eclectic journey for me, but that grounding in uh, in engineering and that practical approach of knowledge to solving problems has, has stayed with me all my life.
0: All right, Bob. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: I'm still learning, and and what would I have done differently? You know, it's been for me, as I said, a very eclectic journey. And I don't really regret, but I don't feel like there's any one thing that I would say, you know, I wish I'd learned it earlier.
0: I I don't know. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. A managers appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by Ted or Capital Alligators.